Good morning, church. I'm Scott Weatherford. How are you guys? Good. I love that song we just sang, I Need You Every Hour. I, I feel like today has been very interesting. I've gone through purgatory down the devil's backbone to come here to preach to you today. So I feel like I've been through hell to get here today. So I know we're going to have a really good time together. I, I come to you, uh, goodness, with just really with my hands open asking God, what in the world do you want me to do? I want to say this to you, Wimberly. God loves to take insignificant, out-of-the-way places and do big things for his glory. Uh, Nazareth is a great example of that. An insignificant, out-of-the-way place. What good could come from Nazareth? King Jesus, of course, right? So you guys look forward to today what God's going to say in and for and through us. Now, I've been around a long time, and you guys remember the 90s. I know some of you don't, but some of you do remember the 90s. Remember they used to have these posters that you could buy these inspirational posters they had you know, have this picture of this cat that was wet and said, hang in there, you know, ridiculous mess that we bought and pictures of eagles and things like that. Well, I was on a plane during the 90s and I read this quote and it really has stuck with me. It says, many things catch your eye, few things capture your heart, pursue the heart. Few things capture the heart, pursue the heart. Now, it sounds kind of cheesy, but that's really a great statement. What has really captured our eye, the flashy things, the bright things of life, or what has really captured our hearts, the things of significance, the things that matter. Uh, earlier this week, I was in Detroit, Michigan. It was cold. I don't, I don't understand why people live in places like that. I, I lived actually five and a half years in Canada, which it was colder. It was Canada cold in Detroit. We got two and a half, three, four inches of snow. I don't know. It doesn't bother me anymore because I remember one day in Canada, we got four feet of snow one day. That'll make you say, bless God for Texas right there. So uh, I was in there, and we went to this micro, uh, Microsoft store, and they had this 85-inch monitor, the cameras mounted on both ends, where you could do video conferencing from any time, any place in the world. You can have a limited amount of people joining you on the conference, and it was a mere $22,000. That captured my eye. It surely didn't capture my heart, and I felt the, the wane in my wallet as I was like, then they said, oh, well, we have a 55-inch, and it's only 9,000. Like that made a difference. So, you know, these things that capture our eye. Now, what I've discovered with things that capture my heart, uh, my eye, rather, is that I grow tired of them and move on. I get bored and I move on. But the things that capture my heart, I have a tendency to really lean into and obsess over. And I focus on those things, and they move towards really what defines my life. Now, let me explain. Tell me some things that have captured my heart. Well, my wife, Tara, she's, she's sitting right over there. If you look around and see a woman that's far too pretty to be married to me, that's her. She's, she's over there. I also have my good friends, Brian and Tammy Brown. They're over there sitting with Tara. And Brian, I won't introduce you, but it's Brian Brown, and he's my compadre. Brian and Tammy are part of the church we started in Victoria, Texas. So I've known these guys since 1992. Tammy was my son Caleb's first grade teacher. And so, Tammy, you look way too young to be doing this this long. But anyway, that's Brian and Tammy. Brian's now mad at me. Suck it up, buttercup. It's going to get worse. All right. So, Tara's captured my heart. I first met her, and I get this, it's really going to date me, in 1978. I was attending Florida State University, go Seminoles. I got pumped out of the final, the, the, the tournament yesterday, beat like a rented mule. 
But anyway, anybody watching basketball obsessively? Okay, there's a few. And I, you know what? I noticed girls raising their hand. That is awesome. That's awesome. Anyway, I've been doing that. I met Tara in, 19, in 1978, the fall of 78. She was not impressed with me. Can you imagine that? But she's not impressed. And so I pursued her, and we had our first date on February the 9th of 1980. A year and a half later, she finally called and asked me out. I guess my charm finally won her over. But we've been married for over 35 years. She has definitely captured my heart, captured my attention, uh, captured my income, captured everything about me. And she's, she's awesome, and she's my best and most trusted friend. Uh, she's my boss. She's my confidant. She's my all in all. She's still working on me, and which is, uh, I think, a work in progress. Tara, one day I'll be dead. You'll be done. So that's, that's good news on maybe on both fronts. But my kids, I have two kids, Caleb and Kayla. Caleb lives in Austin. Kayla lives in, uh, in New Braunfels. Caleb, Kayla is married to John. And they, they, they said, Dad, you were obsessed with us. And I am. I love my kids. I adore them. And then Kayla and John had a little girl named Ivy. And wow, grandchildren are the reward for not killing your children. It is awesome. They are just fantastic. And I just love little Ivy. And my daughter said to me the other day, Dad, you are indulgent. And I said, absolutely. That's what grandparents do. You know, we just indulge. We, she was sitting in my lap eating banana bread at the time. I mean, that's the way it should be. And she said, how much banana bread do you need to feed her? I said, as much as she wants, right? So that's what grandparents do. And then we found out Wednesday, uh, they're having another little girl, Lily Jane. And so we've got two little girls come in and there'll be lots of clothes and bows and doll houses. And, you know, my fa- I have a lot of titles. My favorite title is Papa. I get to be Papa. And, and uh, I just love that little girl. Now, Ivy is totally in love with Gigi. That's her grandmother. Me, she's still kind of figuring it out. So I have to keep indulging her. So I figure by the time she's 16 and I give her that brand new BMW, she'll be totally <laughs> in love with me by that time. What do you guys think? think that's a good plan? Yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm obsessed with my grandkids. Uh, I, I'm, I'm but let me tell you really something that's caught my attention. When I was seven, I asked Jesus to come into my heart. And my dad, he led me to the Lord. I was sitting on his lap. It was the 60s. He smelled like Old Spice. Everybody in the 60s smelled like Old Spice. Or high karate or English leather. One two. You guys don't know what those fragrances are. You got to check them out. They're just like awesome. But... Yeah, my, my dad led me to the Lord. And when I was 15, God called me to preach. And I firmly said, nope, ain't going to do that. And at 21, well, I was a senior at Florida State, majoring in music, voice, performance. I'd be singing opera today had I not been for talent. I think I told you that already. That was funny. <laughs> um, dating Tara, God reminded me, called me to ministry. So I started, said, okay, I'll, I went to seminary. Did that, went to New Orleans. That's the place you go when you really want an education. You don't go to Southwestern. That was a jab at Wyatt, subtle. Make sure you guys didn't miss that. And then I started doing music and youth and education and all those other wretched combinations. And then when I was 33, God reminded me, first time he called me, he called me to preach. Well, I do what he called me to do. Captured my attention. Captured my heart. So we moved to a nowhere place and started a little church, and God grew it. God moved. 
He's called me to preach. This January, I was uh, in Denver, uh, Colorado. I was preaching at a church here, January 1st. The Sundays, pastors don't want to preach. That's when I get to preach. They, this pastor asked me to come out and preach, and, and uh, he said, now, Scott, I want you to remind them that starting next week, we're going to do 21 days of prayer and fasting. Our church is. And I said, okay, I'll remind them. So I got up that Sunday and said, okay, guys, here's the deal. You guys are going to start 21 days of prayer and fasting next Sunday. Everybody's going to like pray and fast and 21 days, you're going to focus in next Sunday. Now, you're going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I think I fast between meals. I think that's, that's it. <laughs> it's a spiritual way to do it. And I looked at Tara and I saw that look on her face and said, you're going to do this too. Ah, so we did this thing called the Daniel fast, where you only eat fruit and vegetables and water for 21 days. I know what hell feels like. There's vegetables and water. It was pretty, pretty bad. But during that time of focusing on the Lord, on the last day, the 29th of January, I was praying and said, God, you know, I love what I do helping leaders. That's what I do, strengthen leaders. But I really, I really want a people that I can pour into and and teach God's word to. And then uh, that afternoon, Wyatt called me. He said, would you consider? It was like, God has my yes before he asks. So here's my deal. This is what I think. I grew up in the South, in Florida. That is the South, especially the panhandle of Florida, or you can call it L.A., Lower Alabama. That's where I, where I grew up. And um, my parents are both from Mississippi. We got anybody from Mississippi in the house? There's a few there, very polite. They smell like magnolias. You can go see them over there. But uh, my mom was from Liberty, Mississippi. You guys know where that is? Yeah. And um, my daddy's from Neshoba County, Mississippi, Yeah, where the men are men and the women are afraid of the men. So that's Neshoba County. Um, my grandmother, she's a southern, just southern belle, my dad's mom. And uh, she would do Sunday dinner, and she would fix, like, amazing spread of food. She'd have three or four different kinds of meat, seven or eight different kinds of vegetables, uh, several salads. She'd always have congeal salad. I was always suspicious of congeal salad. And I think that's a good mantra for life. Be very aware of things enfoiled in something gooey. Pay attention to that. Are you guys with me this morning? You're a little slow. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll serve congeal salad later, all right? Cat food in it. Anyway, um, and she would always have like several desserts, like banana pudding. It had to have banana pudding. I got to get a witness. Yeah, banana. Do you know the people in Canada did not know what banana pudding was? We introduced that to them, and this is what they, they would close their eyes. They would eat it, close their eyes, and twirl the spoon in the air. I know how they felt. It's a euphoric experience to enjoy the delectable delight of banana pudding. My grandmother's dessert, she would fix several kinds. You would always have to put on glasses because your tongue would slap your eyeballs out. That's how good it was. It's not going to get much better, y'all, so you might as well just stay with me. But here's my deal about, about Sundays and about teaching God's Word. I want to make sure it's like Grandma's Sunday dinner. I want to make sure you're well-fed. Well, make sure you're well-fed, that you're going to enjoy the bread and honey, the milk and meat of God's Word. You're going to go deep into it. And here's the next. I want to provide you a doggy bag, something to take home with you, to take the weekend with you, because I know that God wants you to become like Jesus, and you will not become like Jesus unless you're richly dining on His Word. So we want to feed you. We want to make sure you're well-fed. Is that a deal? Okay, that's five of you. That is awesome. The rest of you consider it later, all right? 
So this has captured my heart. Now, in 1991, I was on staff at a mega church in Houston, uh, Houston area of Texas. And um, I remember sitting on the platform and thinking, if this is church, it's not worth my life. It was stuffy. It was formal. I mean, guys, I usually don't wear a suit. I wore a suit today out of you know, just like respect. I feel more comfortable in a pair of jeans and an untucked shirt. Can I get a witness on that? Yeah. Fishing shirts were a direct gift from God <laughs> to us. And you're just kind of the way I roam. So, you know, this, this, kind of, this is a costume. Anyway, um, I was reading in Acts chapter 2, and I said, that's it. That's the kind of church I want to pastor. I want a church that really is making a difference. This has captured my heart. And I want to pursue the heart. So this morning, I want to take you on an adventure of looking at that church and considering what God wants for this church. You see, church is not something you go to. It's not a place. It's not a building. It's a people. It's the people of God. It's the redeemed of the Lord and whose mandate is the gospel, whose power is the Holy Spirit, and whose assignment is to bring God's hope to the world. It's made up of us, of us, broken, maligned, misguided, messy, us. We're the fellowship of the broken. Now, I want you to look at your neighbor right now. Look him in the eye and say, you are broken. Will you do that? Some of you, some of you had to wake somebody up. Hey, 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 wake up. You're broken, okay? Some of you enjoyed that way too much. You're like, so you're broken. But we all are. We're a mess, right? But God takes the mess and he makes the message. And the message of the church is to be the hope of the world. So today we're going to go on this adventure together. Now, I want to give this to you. What you think about this? Your understanding of Jesus will shape your understanding of the church and shape your understanding of the church's mission in the world, the mission of the church in the world. Let me say it this way. Your Christology will shape your ecclesiology, will shape your missiology. Aren't you glad I said it the first way, that way, first? You know, how you view Jesus and what he's up to will shape our view of us as a family which then shape our mission in the world. What are we supposed to be? Who we're supposed to be about? What are we supposed to do together for King Jesus? So as we look at this passage today, I pray that this will capture your heart as well. The writings of Dr. Luke, the precision of a physician looking at what should be, what could be all for Jesus. So you ready for this? That's four of you. That's awesome. Are you guys ready for this? Yes. All right, let's go. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you're going to say to us this morning, and I pray that you'll speak through me, that I'll be my words or my thoughts or my opinion, but your truth that will guide us into all righteousness and make us become what you want us to be. And I thank you for what you're going to say, and I pray this all in Christ Jesus' strong name. Amen. Now, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. 42 through 47. It's going to be projected up on the screen. If you got your phone, your smart device, you can download it there. You can look at it there. I will tell you a really good, if you're a kind of a Bible student, uh, blue letter version of the Bible is a great tool to have. Of course, Bible Gateway, uh, one verse, all those are great apps to have on your phone. Let me read this for you. Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. 
<clears throat> they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, if you're an underliner uh, or kind of a highlighter, I want you to underline or highlight the word devoted because that really, that word devoted is a key. Now, I've preached on this passage several times before, but this week I really got in the word and I re-really, re really reworked it. I didn't want to kind of you know, give you something from the back of the refrigerator. I wanted to give you something that was fresh. And as I looked at this, this word devoted jumped out at me because the word devotion then is the things that capture my heart. I am devoted to my wife. I'm devoted to my children. I'm devoted to my grandchildren. I'm devoted to the church. And I'll say this to you. I have decided to love you. Love is a decision based on commitment, and I've decided to love you. If God asks me to come and be your interim pastor, this is what I'll do. I'll feed you, and I'll love you, and I will not leave you alone, just saying. I'll aggravate you, but it's all out of love. And why? Because you captured my heart and devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers with an S. This is the EVS version I'm using. And all came along, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. Devotion will always produce awe. Awe. Wow. Awe. I woke up this morning, and I saw Tara, and I went, oh, there she is. She didn't leave. That's awesome. Wow. Awe. Oh. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now, this wasn't communism, y'all. This was community. And they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were aware of what was going on around each other. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. The King James says, sincere hearts. Sincerity and generosity are twins in the same bed. Praising God and having favor with all the people it means everybody enjoyed everybody. Can you imagine a church where everybody enjoys everybody? Did you know the Apostle Paul talked more about unity in the church than he did about sexual immorality? In a day and age where sexual immorality was an act of worship, he talked more about unity. And what this early church did, they, man, they were together. They were together. And the Lord added to their numbers day by day those that were being saved, that God did something incredible in, for, and through them. Now, I hear pastors say this a lot. God wants to do something in you. He wants to do something through you. But I want to say God wants to do something for you. He wants to do something in you, of course, to change your heart, to bring transformation, to open up your mind and your, your, your heart and life to him. But he also wants to do something for you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to heal you. He wants to cleanse you. He wants to root out the root of bitterness in your life. A few years ago, I was with a friend of mine in Chicago, and we were talking about Wiesatch trees. He didn't know what a Wiesatch tree was. He says to me, will you send me a Wiesatch tree so I could plant it on my campus in Chicago? I said, I will not do that. I will not bring the scourge of the Wiesatch to, to Illinois. I'm just not going to do that. I'm not going to be responsible for bringing this because, you know, once you got a Wiesatch, you always have a Wiesatch. And some of you have a Wiesatch root of bitterness in your heart that God wants to remove it from you. He wants to do something for you. You've been sinned against. 
and God wants you to heal you of that atrocity against you. Then he wants to do something through you. Through your life, so your mess becomes a message, your misery becomes a ministry. God wants to do something in you, for you, and through you. And he wants to do something in the church, for the church, and then through the church, all for his glory, all for King Jesus. So here's the first thing I want you to hone in on, and you write this down. The first thing is they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. And that would be the first point of this, of this talk, and hopefully all the points make a point. Devotion is an intentional act of focusing on really what matters. Really what matters. That I focus in devoted on what really matters. Now, some of us have been watching the NCAA basketball tournament, right? The brackets and my bracket got burst in the first, first day. It was gone, done, gone. And so now I, I don't know who's going to win. The thing is, it doesn't matter, does it? I cannot tie my emotions to my basketball team. I cannot tie my emotions to my football team. Can I get a witness from the Aggies and the Longhorns in the room? I cannot tie my emotions to the back of 18 to 20-year-olds, right? It just doesn't work. You know, gig them, hook them, whatever. It just doesn't work. I have to tie my emotions, my devotion, to what really matters in my life, what really has captured my heart. It's the intention of focusing and being devoted. Now, their devotion, this early church's devotion, was to King Jesus. He had absolutely captured their heart. There's nothing like a risen Savior to capture your heart. Nothing like a healing Savior to capture your heart. Nothing like a forgiving Savior to capture your heart. Nothing like an empowering Savior to capture your heart. Nothing like a coming again Savior to capture your heart. And the intentionality of focusing on King Jesus, Jesus was and should be front and center because he is the center of history, the center of universe, the center of everything. It's all for Jesus. They devoted themselves to Jesus first and foremost. Then they did something really even crazier. They devoted themselves to each other. To each other. Josephus, the Roman historian, wrote about the early church in Jerusalem. He said within the first six months of the church, there was over 100,000 believers in Jesus Christ in the church. And they had basically had eradicated poverty in Jerusalem because they devoted themselves to each other. I want you to think about this for a second, Wimberly. Dream with me for a minute. What if this church devoted ourselves to Jesus and to each other? What would this city look like? What if we devoted ourselves to Wimberley, devoted ourselves to the surrounding communities? Dripping Springs is growing like a milkweed in a barnyard. What if there was a devotion to people who are far away from God? You see, nobody is out of the reach of a great God. Did you know that? There's nobody who sinned so bad that God can't forgive. Nobody is so mean God can't fix. Nobody who's so messy God can't clean up. They devoted themselves to Jesus and they devoted themselves to each other. 
and their devotion was not secretive. It was public. It was public. They devoted themselves publicly, and the first step of public devotion for this new church and for us is baptism. So people were baptized. Now, you think about this a second. How in the world, now Peter preaches, and, and 3,000 people say, all right, okay, we're in. And yeah, I'm, I'm sure there was a logistical problem at that moment. You know, there's 120 of them, 3,000 respond. I don't think they thought through the strategy of how they were going to take care of all these people. Do you think so? Like, wow, that, that, that worked. Here we go. Here we go. And then later, five more thousand people responded. So there was 8,120 like in the first month of the church. That's a, that's a big church. That's a Dallas kind of church. And it, 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 100,000, Josephus said, just logistical nightmare. How do you care? How do you, how do, you do that? Well, God does that. And this is what they did. 3,000 people said, we're in, we're in. Peter said, okay, you're in. Um, John, John, James, what? Baptize them, Peter? Okay, we're going to baptize you guys. Where? They're, on, they're, on the te- they're at the temple, and you're thinking, they got to baptize 3,000 people. Where's, where's water? Tell you something, God always has a way. I've been to Jerusalem, Israel, about four times, and, and archaeologists have uncovered this because the temple's been destroyed. The Romans destroyed it in 70 AD. But when you go to the temple on the southern wall, there's this huge wall, and you would enter the temple through a tunnel and up a staircase. Before you entered the tunnel, there was the mikvah, or bathing pools, washing pools. There were place of pools there. And what, what would happen, the Jewish people would come to worship. They would, they would wash themselves ceremonially to be clean, and basically so they wouldn't stink too. Think about it. Dusty, nasty, yeek. Old Spice, high karate, English leather. Pass through the waters of mikvah, immersed, and then they would go up to the temple. So God had a baptismal pool waiting for them at the mikvah, and they baptized 3,000 people in there. And this is what, it, what happened. They went public with the private, and once you go public with the private, there ain't no going back. Now, baptism doesn't save you. It shows that you are. You are saved. Baptism is a symbol, I believe. It's an outward symbol of an inward devotion. Now, I wear a a wedding ring, okay? I'm going to take it off right now. My wedding ring's off. Am I still married? Three of you nodded your head. One of you just woke up, okay? Yeah. Okay, I'm still married. Actually, this is not my wedding ring. This is my Tara ring. I don't belong to no wedding. I belong to a woman, and her name's Tara. And I remember this. I put this on, and I remember to whom I belong. Also, this sends a message to every other woman out there, Papa Scott's off limits. Like that needs to be advertised, but anyway, (laughs) just say it, okay? I got a mirror. I get it, okay. But this is a symbol of my devotion, Baptism is a symbol of my devotion. Well, some of you say, well, I was baptized when I was a baby. That's great. Your parents did a good thing. They dedicated you to the Lord. That's awesome. But you need to be baptized as a believer after you have believed, as a symbol of your devotion. Your your parents baptized you as a symbol of their devotion. Now it's a symbol of your devotion. Have you been baptized? And that's that step of saying that I'm in, I'm going public with this. Now, their devotion was also to the apostles' teaching. The apostles had been with Jesus. 
And they couldn't wait to tell these people what they had learned, seen, and heard. Man, I know how that feels. I know how that feels. Uh, what I was thinking about, you know, when, uh, on, that, on that January the 29th when I was, we ended that prayer and fasting. I didn't end that story. We ended that prayer and fasting time. I was praying about an opportunity to preach and feed people. And Wyatt called me that day, the end of the fast. And I said, yes, I'll come. Then I got excited. I said, man, the things I get to tell you about, the things I've discovered, the truth that's in God's word to just inspire you and feed you and equip you. I could only imagine that Peter, James, and John, and Matthew, and Thomas, I doubt he was any good. Thomas, okay. Judas wasn't there. He, he was hung up over some stuff. He could, yeah. But these guys were like, can, can I go? Can it be my turn? Can I preach? Can I? Because he couldn't wait to tell the good news. They devoted themselves to the, the teachings of Jesus. And they were sharing the life-changing truth of Jesus. And this devotion, well, as you, as you look through it, Jesus was front and center. But here's some things. I want you to write these five things down that they were really devoted to. And you find it throughout this passage of Scripture. They were devoted to, to the fellowship, to one another. And they were in it. They were into connecting. And they, they believed, they really believed that connecting best happened with a hot dog in your hand. That there's food involved. Now, I love Wyatt. We've become friends over these, these past few weeks. And every time we meet together, it's always revolve around something to eat. Okay, don't judge me. It just is. Every now and then it's around coffee. But, but it's like, hey, meet me for lunch or meet me here and let's, let's meet together. Because fellowship happens best with a hot dog in your hand or a hamburger or a chicken fried steak or a fajita or just some suggestions. So on April the 9th, we're going to have this fellowship, this party with a purpose that we gather together to eat and enjoy one another. That sounded awesome. I mean, we're going to have hot dogs and hamburgers. It's, it's just a, a chance for devotion to be connected to one another. Uh, when Tara and I started, our, started the church in Victoria, we started small groups in our homes, and, and we always ate. I felt like it was important that we ate. And eat we did because that, there's the commonality of ingesting something that just changes you. They devoted themselves to eating, to breaking of bread. Some people say, oh, they devoted themselves to the Lord's Supper. Oh, I had the Lord's Supper. Those little crackers, that little shot of juice, and that's what they did. Oh, no. They did some of that, but they did more of the other. I guarantee it. Especially those little things we call crackers now. That mean, if that's the body of Christ, ooh, that's okay. All right, I'll, I'll move on. They devoted themselves to spiritual maturity, to growing to be like Christ. They wanted to be like Christ. You know the word Christian means little Christ? They devoted themselves to that. They devoted themselves to ministry. They saw a need, they met a need. We were down in Victoria. There was a lady named Pat. She came to me one day. She was really agitated. Uh, she was from up north, and she'd come down to South Texas, and she ran an RV park where people from Canada mostly would come and park their RVs and spend the winter. After living in Canada for a winter, I understand why people want to leave Canada for the winter. And she was down there, and she, she came to me one day. She was really agitated. She said, Pastor Scott, we have to do something about poverty and people struggling on the south side of town. 
I said, well, Pat, what are you talking about? She said, this week I've given away clothing, I've given away food, I've given away furniture. This church needs to do something about what's going on on the south side of town. I said, well, Pat, I think God's already doing it. She goes, well, what? I don't see it. I said, it's you. You've done it. Now, let me tell you, how can we help you do what God has asked you to do? We didn't need a committee. We didn't need to take a vote. See a need, meet a need. Empower those who meet the needs to meet the needs. And people's needs were met not through the bureaucracy of an organization, but the movement of a family. And God moved, and people responded. And we devoted themselves, and this church in Acts devoted themselves to meeting needs. They didn't take a vote. I think sister so-and-so deserves to get three loaves of bread and two fish. All in favor, say aye. (laughs) They fed her. They clothed her. It was the mark of maturity. Last week, I preached in Detroit, and I talked about the plight of poverty. You know, if 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 you lend to the poor, you lend to God. God can cover his loans. says that in Proverbs. They devoted themselves to evangelism, to sharing, and the Lord added to their number daily those that were saved. I love that. People couldn't help but get saved. They'd meet King Jesus, and they'd meet this awesome family that was headed by King Jesus. And how could they say no? And the movement of Christ swept the known world, and they worshiped God by praising him and honoring him. You see, worship wasn't just music. In the church, we have it so wrong. We think worship is music. Of course, worship's the slow music. Praise is the fast music. Just saying. But worship is saying, Jesus, I'm yours. I express it through singing. I express it through giving. I express it through serving. I express it verbally, sharing my faith. I express it with Jesus, I'm yours. You see, devotion will always create an action. I want you to write that next thing down. Devotion will always create an action. They gathered both large and small. Did you know the temple courts would hold 300,000 people? If you ever get to go to Israel, perhaps I'll get to take you. We'll go up to the Temple Mount today. There's two mosques up there now. There's the Dome of the Rock, and then there's another mosque. But it's massive. It'll hold 300,000 people. And the church would meet up there every day. And then they would say, hey, you want to come lunch? 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 And they would divide into small groups and homes all over Jerusalem. Did you know the church did not have a building for the first 300 years of its existence? They didn't need a building because they weren't a building. They were a movement of God. They were the people of God. Paul goes into Philippi, meets Lydia, worshiping God at a riverside. And God started a church in Philippi. And they met together common and they met in homes. All around, Paul's church planting movement was never about a location, it was always about a people. Always about a people, never about a place, but always about a people. They devoted themselves to being together. They ate and they prayed. Big, strong prayers, the prayers of action. In Acts 6, they prayed so hard and so strong that the place shook where they were meeting. I don't know about you, but I've never been in a prayer meeting like that. 
I've been at a prayer meeting where people snored. Most of the prayer meetings, in fact, I got in trouble. When I was in ninth grade, I got in trouble, and I'm not going to tell you for what, but I got in trouble, and it was like almost the unpardonable sin. I was in that bad of trouble. My mama, she'd say, Scott, we didn't raise you to be a heathen. I was pretty good at it. And um, she said, you're going to have to go to prayer meeting every Wednesday night for two months, two months. You're going to have to go to prayer meeting. Oh, my gosh, just kill me. <laughs> and uh, when I was growing up, prayer meeting was the scourge of the earth. Are you, are you with me? Well, I just need to pray for Aunt Jessie's liver. It's about to fail. And it got to be where we were just gossiping about Christians calling it prayer. You know what I'm talking about? Christian sharing. Gossiping. Yeah, so-and-so, he's having trouble drinking again. He's not running right on his life. Need to pray for him. <laughs> sorry, I'm silly. These are powerful prayers. They met needs. They enjoyed each other, which, man, that's a big deal. Do you know there's folks that you look forward to seeing? So well, they are. It's good to see them. And there's folks you don't look forward to see. You go, oh, yeah, there they are. You know, you're walking along Sam's. Oh, there they are. Try to get away from them. Right, here's the deal. You are one or the other of those to somebody. They enjoyed each other. Devotion should be we enjoy each other. We don't base on the preference or the service we attend. We enjoy each other. We look forward to one another because of what King Jesus has done, and that becomes contagious and when people come in that are new, we don't go, who are they? They parked in my place. They sat in my pew. We say, wow, who are they? How can I get to know them? I bet they have a story. Maybe they have a need. All for Jesus. All for Jesus. And God moved accordingly. You see, God always moves when we're devoted. Always moves when we're devoted. God loves our devotion. That's how God moved. He added. He created a new community. He created a movement. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has a conversation with his disciples, and he said, who do men say that I am? And they started giving their academic answers. Oh, some say you're Elijah, because they really believed Elijah was going to literally come back because he was translated, so he was going to come back. And they said, oh, some say you're uh, John the Baptist. Some say you're another prophet. Jesus said, okay, that's great. That's a great Sunday school answer. Kind of like the four boys in Sunday school class. The teacher asks, what's brown and fuzzy and runs up a tree? They looked at each other and said, sound like a squirrel, but we're going to say Jesus. <laughs> Sunday school answer. Jesus said, that's great, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter said, you're, Jesus said, you're right, Peter, small stone. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven revealed it to you. Peter, upon this rock, pointing to himself, I wish we could see the body language of the Bible because Jesus used a different word for stone. He used the word foundation stone. Upon this rock, Peter even addressed that in his epistle. Peter knew he wasn't the Pope. Peter knew Jesus was the senior pastor of the church. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
And he said this standing in front of a place called the gates of hell, which was a huge rock at Caesarea Philippi with a crack in the rock. And the ancients believed the demons would go to and fro from the underworld through that crack in the rock. And Jesus says, that nonsense over there, the pagan worship, not going to keep my church from being the church. In fact, those pagans are going to become my people because heathens make great Christians. Church people, not so much. But heathens make great Christians. Let's go. Let's go. You see, God moved and created new birth that he added to their number. In fact, later in the book of Acts, it says many of the priests came to Christ. I love the fact that God was about to launch a church planting movement. So he prepared the boys who'd been through seminary to go out and plant churches. In fact, you probably don't know this, but history reveals that Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, moved to the island of Cyprus, where he was the bishop of Cyprus. So when Lazarus preached about death, do you think people would come and listen to him? God created a movement. And this church in Acts 2 fulfilled the mandate of God. The mandate of God is the great commandment, the great commission, to love God and love people and to go in the world and make disciples of those people God loves. They fulfill that. They did it. The Bible says they filled Jerusalem with the teachings of Christ. And then they went to Judea and then Samaria and then to the ends of the world. And 300 years later, the Holy Roman Emperor bend, bowed his knee to King Jesus. Because God moved in their devotion. And there's no time in human history where it's more needed. Almost fell off the dead gum stage. There's no time in human history where God doesn't need to move greater than now. It's time for the church to be the church, not in legalism or judgment, but with love and grace and hope and truth to set people free. God loves to take insignificant, out-of-the-way, ordinary places and do great things. Wimberley is out of the way, insignificant, and orderly. Let's go. All for Jesus. All for Jesus. So what about us? Are we devoted? Are we devoted to each other? Are we devoted to the Lord? Are we saying, let's go, let's go. We hesitant. We're afraid. We say, well, it's going to cost. You see, we can stop the drift with our focus of devotion. You see, if I could get you to focus on something else other than King Jesus, if I could steal your focus, I could steal your future. I could steal your talent. And if I can get you focused on something that doesn't matter, that you'll chase stuff that doesn't matter. Tara has something she uses on me called the focus fox. That's the focus fox. Because I'm a bit ADD, and at times she'll go, sometimes when I'm preaching, I'll see the focus fox rise its head. 
I shouldn't have taught y'all that because <laughs> sometimes you think you're at a rock concert and you see people go, focus, Fox. If we focus on Jesus and focus on his purpose and focus being his people, that God will focus our lives back to him and use us in ways we can never think possible and give us a legacy. You know, because one day I'm going to die and nobody will know who I am, but will they know who Jesus is because I am, because I've been focused on King Jesus, all for Jesus. I wear a yellow bracelet around my wrist. It doesn't say live strong. It says all for Jesus. Because I want to be reminded I'm focused on King Jesus. Will this church be focused? Now listen, we could focus on buildings. We could focus on programs. We could focus on style. Do you know buildings, programs, and style have a shelf life? What's popular today will not be popular tomorrow. Music has a shelf life. It's just music. Chuck Berry died yesterday. I was trying to think of what Chuck Berry songs he wrote. Roll Over Beethoven, that's the only one I could remember. You know some more, that's good, yeah. There's one of you in the room, okay? Has a shelf life. But Jesus doesn't have a shelf life. This beautiful new building you guys built, it's not gonna last forever. Do you know that? But God's people, we can focus on personalities. You know, and, and of course, America is enamored with personalities. Americans like big, loud, boisterous preachers. Canada hates them. So what does God do? He sends me to Canada. Thanks a lot. But I had to learn to let Jesus be front and center. We could focus on our traditions. We ain't never done it that way before, preacher. No kidding. We could focus on budgets. Instead of asking, what will that do? How much is that going to cost? I'll tell you something, y'all. God's will is God's bill. God doesn't ever wring his hands. Oh, what are we going to pay for that? Oh, Gabriel, what are we going to do? In fact, there's a story. I didn't pick on Southwestern like I should have, Wyatt, today in this service. There's a story about Southwestern Seminary. It's where you go when you can't get into New Orleans. You go to Southwestern. <laughs> story about Southwestern in 1902. They ran out of money. They got to close down or somewhere around the 1900s. And a guy went to the, to the uh, a, a cattleman, came into their board meeting where they're talking about shutting it down. He dropped a bag of money on the, on the table. He said, I just sold all my cows at the stockyard. The Lord told me to come down here and give this to y'all so you can keep the school open. See, God owns the cattle on 10,000 hills and the hills in which they stand, so God sold some cows to keep Southwestern going. Literally. Because God's will is God's bill. Or we've been captivated and captured by a holy God and his vision for the church to be the hope of the world. You see, many things catch my eye and if you capture my heart, I'm going to chase the heart. What about you? What do you need to do? What is your response to King Jesus today?